Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and we will uh, read to the end of the chapter. If you are able, would you please stand as we read God's word together? Uh, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida. The city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Use this your word to gather and perfect the saints, to reach and equip your, your people, uh, to bring unbelievers to saving faith, and to strengthen the faith of your saints. Uh, for your glory and our good, we ask it through Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, 1987, uh, I will go so far as to say one of the most complete albums of all time was released. Uh, It's U2's Joshua Tree. Uh, One of the more popular songs, one of the better known songs on that album it's just great from start to finish. It's one of those kinds of out. You don't, there's no song you skip and go, well, this is dumb. I'm not listening to this. One of the songs most people know is I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's a, it's a song that just sort of echoes. I'm searching for something and I've looked in all these kinds of places but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In fact, Bono, the lead singer for U2, uh, described it in an interview with Rolling Stone as a song really about doubt, not about faith. 
they, it captures the human heart, doesn't it? Everybody's searching for something. Everybody's looking for something. Everybody's out there trying to figure out if I, if I just had, if I just knew, if I could just grab onto, if someone would just give me, or if I could just discover or learn or whatever the thing might be. Everybody's looking for something. And there are a lot of people out there who still haven't found what they're looking for. Maybe you're familiar with St. Augustine's sort of famous quote um, that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless and won't find uh, its, its rest until it finds rest in thee. Or for that matter, Blaise, Augustine, 4th century, Blaise Pascal, 17th century, French philosopher, mathematician, ridiculously smart guy about a bunch of different things, uh, writes a book called Pensées, just thoughts. Um, and in it, he sort of recognizes that man is looking for something, man is searching, and there's this you know, need to sort of fill what's inside of them. And he says, the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. And so the question is, what are you looking for? What are you searching for? Maybe it's a little bit better health. Maybe it's a little bit better wealth. Maybe it's some peace and comfort. Maybe it's some rest. Maybe it's any number of things that we are looking for. Even people who, who trust in Christ and therefore kind of ought to know better. We still find ourselves thinking, okay, Jesus is great and all, but I could use an extra few bucks. I mean, I get it. Jesus is all sufficient, but boy, if I just had a little bit of peace, boy, if I just had a little bit of rest, we keep thinking that, that maybe, okay, Jesus is enough, but maybe there needs to be more. Maybe, maybe the Christian life shouldn't be so ordinary. Maybe it should be, maybe, you know, where's the pizzazz? Okay, Jesus is enough, but where's the, where's the ecstatic? Where's the crazy? Where's the outlandish? Where's the out there? Even we as Christians sort of have this sense that maybe, maybe there is something more. Maybe there is something extraordinary out there for me. Well, this, this passage is for you. This passage invites you to well, just come and see. Come and see Jesus. Come and see if he isn't sufficient. Come and see if he isn't all he uh, says he is. If he isn't all he's cracked up to be. Come and see Jesus. Notice, first of all, come and see uh, is the call of ordinary evangelism. It's a new day, verse 35. It's the next day. John is... That's John the Baptist. It gets a little confusing. And it's a, it, it just gets a little confusing because John the writer is writing about John the Baptist. And here's the trick. And this will matter in this passage. John never actually refers to himself by name in this gospel. He uses other names or he just doesn't really talk about himself. That actually comes up in this very passage. But John the Baptist is out and Jesus walks by and he's got a, some of his disciples with him, at least two. At least Andrew, we know, uh, is, is given by name. 
uh, in verse 40. And there's another one who is not named, who may very well be a young John the evangelist himself. And John the Baptist simply says, there he is. You say, hold on. No, he doesn't. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Okay, you're right. But technically, he has said this before. He said it in the previous passage. Now, he said it around Jewish leaders. It doesn't seem unreasonable that his disciples would have been with him. But the reality is, this has been the forerunner's message from the beginning. John the Baptist's whole mission in life is to tell people, there's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. It's the second time in the first chapter that John the Baptist says those words. And it seems as though Andrew and the other guy, who, by the way, I will just, I'm just going to assume it's John, the writer of the gospel. I'm just going to make that assumption so I don't have to keep saying the other guy, right? Like the third tenor, right? You, Domingo, Paparotti, and the other guy. Like that's what we do. Well, Andrew and John here behold the Lamb of God and they see Jesus. I mean, John point to Jesus. And did you notice their response? See ya. I mean, like literally, they just, okay. And they wandered off and followed after Jesus. Maybe there's a part of you that kind of like, well, hold on. John just lost two disciples. That's not what John thinks. John sees the fruition of my ministry. My whole ministry is to point people to Jesus. And when these two men leave him to follow Jesus, he goes, sweet. That's exactly what I wanted to happen. That's exactly what I was hoping they would do. But John's message is quite simply, okay, he doesn't say the come because he, he's not calling them to come after him. But he does say see, okay, it's behold. It's the same thing, right? Look, see, behold, it all does the same thing. John simply reiterates a message he's said before and says, look, there's Jesus. See him. And Andrew and John followed after him. But he's not the only one saying, come and see. John's not the only one sort of giving that message. Look down in verses 44 to 46. Because it happens again. Philip has uh, been called to follow Jesus. He goes to find Nathaniel, verse 45. And then he describes, look, we've, we've found the Messiah. We've found this guy that the Old Testament talks about. It's, it's Jesus, the son of Joseph, you know, the guy from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel says, I know Nazareth. Like, I know Tanner. Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what's Philip's response? Come and see. Now look, that, that see has more, means more than just let your eyeballs you know, rods and cones and optic nerves and brain and receiving, sort of perceiving a visual image and the image is upside down. I don't know how that works. 
you heard everything I know about the eye. Rods, cones, optic nerve, and I'm done, right? Vitreous humor, that's kind of fun to say, but I don't know what it does. Um, th that's not what he means. Don't just like set your eyes on it. What he really is saying, come and observe. Come test. Come, I'm convinced this is the guy. You can test both him and me, Nathaniel. Come and follow. Come and be with him. Come and, and follow Jesus. Engage with him yourself. Meet him yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Come and, and you evaluate. Come and see if he isn't the one about whom these Old Testament writers have talked about. Philip means, look, just, just come and test it out. Come and see if he fits that description. You know, we, um, we, we frequently, I think, hide from evangelism because we think we don't have answers. Now, there's something to be said about that, too, later on. But for now, come and see is a perfectly reasonable evangelistic message. We watch, we listen, we observe and we discover that people are looking for something and they still haven't found, if they haven't found Christ, they still haven't found what they're looking for. And so your response is, it sounds to me like you're looking for something. Come and see if Jesus isn't that. Come and see if Jesus isn't the fulfillment of that for which you are looking Ordinary evangelism a lot of times has, has a lot to do with just sort of paying attention to the fact that people are looking for something and they haven't found what they're looking for and you happen to have the answer. You say simply come and see. Come and see Jesus. But why Jesus? Because that sort of matters. How is Jesus what people are looking for. Well, notice how he's described in this passage. First in verse 35, uh, when John points to him and says, verse 36, behold, the Lamb of God. And, and this came up before. He is the sacrifice for sin. He is the one who will bleed and die to atone for our guilt, our cosmic treason. He's the, the spotless unblemished lamb of all the Old Testament sacrifices anticipating the need for blood that washes our sin away. And the writer of Hebrews simply reminds us the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do what Jesus can do. They simply pointed to him. They simply anticipated him. And so he's called the Lamb of God because it is in Christ that the hand of God's judgment will be stayed. It is by his life, bur death, burial, resurrection, his sacrifice in our place that God's judgment is satisfied. But he's not just the Lamb of God. Notice too, down in verse 41, He's also called the Messiah. And you notice, you'll watch as John, writing to a 
primarily Greek audience later-ish in the first uh, century has to keep translating sort of old Aramaic and Hebrew words. And so he takes the Hebrew word Messiah and says, okay, it's, it's the Greek word is Christ. Okay, that's, it's the same thing. It means that. That's what we're talking about here. But it, it's a reference to Jesus as the anointed one. Okay. Anointed for what? Like, if he's the anointed one, shouldn't we be asking ourselves, what does that mean? I'm like, I, okay, I get that Messiah and Christ mean anointed one, but that doesn't help me much. Until you read through the Old Testament and discover that priests were anointed with oil. Before they took office, before they began to exercise and, and operate in the, their function as priests and offering sacrifices for the people and serving in the temple, they had to be anointed. It's a, it's a picture of their need for cleanliness, but it's also a picture of their need for their dependence on the Holy Spirit to carry out that work. But also prophets were anointed. Those who would be the mouthpiece for God to his people. Those who would take God's word to his people were anointed as a picture of their dependence on the Holy Spirit and carrying out their mission, their ministry. And kings were anointed before they took the throne, before they became king as a recognition that as they were going to rule over God's people in God's place, as they were basically exercising God's judgment over his people through and kind of by his word in his place, they had to be anointed. They had to depend on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to carry out their work. So Jesus is the anointed one. He's the anointed prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all of those roles, all of those offices of the old covenant are seen uh, complete and fulfilled in Christ. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest who would offer the sacrifice. He's the, the message of the gospel. He's the messenger of the gospel. He's carrying out the work given to him by the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's our king who rules and reigns in our hearts. In other words, there's this picture here in this passage of Christ as Savior and Lord. As sacrifice and ruler. As the one who atones for our sin, but to whom we then bow and, and submit in humble allegiance. That whole notion that, well, I, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord is foreign to Scripture. That's not a thing. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, that's not how... Discipleship is envisioned in the Bible. Come and see is the call of ordinary evangelism. And ordinary evangelism calls people to repent and to believe and to look to Christ as their sacrifice and as their ruler. There's no other way of salvation. Second in this passage, come and see is the call of ordinary discipleship. Because notice in this passage, come and see isn't only used for evangelistic purposes. It isn't only used to reach new people. It's also used 
to teach people. Andrew and John have have left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. And you find in verse uh, 38, there's this interaction, this conversation. Jesus, who's walking, Andrew and John now following after him. Jesus turns around and asks, what do you want? What are you looking for? There's that question, right? Maybe, maybe we should sort of recognize people haven't found what they're looking for if they haven't yet found Christ. That's a question we can ask. What are you looking for? What are you seeking? Jesus asks. And they said to him, Rabbi, we want to know where you're staying. We want to know where you live. We want to, there's this implication of wanting to be with you. Jesus invites Andrew and John to to engage, to express their desires. And when they do, he says, come and see. Where are you staying? Well, just just come and see. Um, this This is one of those times where you make assumptions about questions people might be asking inside their brain. And so I'm going to pretend to attempt to assume that you're asking a question right about now. How does this passage jive with those other places where Jesus called Peter and and fishermen and said, hey, leave your parents, leave your father, leave the nets, leave your dad to do the work of the nets by himself and follow me. And they did. I, I think there's two different events. This one's earlier. That one's later. This one seems to be, and it's not because it's not always Jesus calling them. Sometimes it's them. It's somebody else calling them. This is, this is sort of entrance into their discipleship, if you will. That other call is the beginning of their apostleship. That's their call to ministry. This is their call to follow and love and serve Jesus. So I would make that distinction between the two. They will later be called to participate in his ministry. For now, this is their, their sort of commitment to following Christ. And Jesus said, come and see. And so they did. But did you notice what they called him? Again, another word that had to be translated. They called him rabbi. And for you Greek speakers, that means teacher. Um, technically, it's literally my great one. But, but it's the, the term people, students, would give to their instructor, would give to their master, to give uh, to their teacher. They're committing themselves to Christ as their new instructor, their master, their teacher. They're committing themselves to the teaching of Christ. In fact, in many ways, they've, they've traded John. They very well had the right to call John the Baptist their rabbi. And they've traded up, as it were. Philip. Philip recruits uh, Nathaniel. Uh, he's found the one in whom, about whom the, the law and the prophets write. Uh, the law and the prophets, verse uh, 45 is Hebrew shorthand for the Bible. Now you do realize they didn't have the Gospel of John yet. 
they didn't they didn't have this. And certainly at the time of Christ, they didn't have Paul's letter. They didn't have Romans. They didn't have even, what they had was Ezekiel. They had Jonah. They had Leviticus. Those are about Jesus. Part of part of the point here, part of what Philip's saying is the law, Moses in the law and the prophets all expect a coming Messiah. Jesus is that guy. If we struggle to see Jesus in the Old Testament, we're missing the point of the Old Testament. In fact, you, you see this play out for you in Luke 24 when Jesus, after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, shows up with his disciples. They're having this conversation. Can you believe it? And Jesus goes, well, yeah. Have you not paid attention? Because the Bible, which for us right now is just the Old Testament, talks about this. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Covenant. The whole Bible anticipates Jesus. In other words, here's the thing. Discipleship is actually kind of ordinary. It's coming and, and seeing where Jesus is. It's coming and, and paying attention to His Word. There's nothing very pizzazzy about Christian discipleship. It's, it's sitting at His feet. Being where He is. Following Him. And it's our conviction that that begins with corporate worship on the Lord's Day. You know, it's, a, it's probably a common enough assumption in today's sort of Christian world that what we do here is all fine and good, but my quiet times. And this is just a result of my quiet times. I would argue this is supposed to fuel your devotion, not the other way around. This is the greater event. This is, go read Hebrews 12. When the writer of Hebrews says that what we're doing right now is not just a bunch of individuals sort of having a gathered corporate quiet time. We're actually meeting with Jesus by His Spirit on that mountain, not the mountain of the law, where there's thunder and lightning, but we're gathered and meeting with Christ in a particular and special way where He meets with us by His Spirit. Corporate worship is the first layer of personal, family, and corporate discipleship. But notice what happens in this relationship, this, this discipleship relationship. Jesus does things through that discipleship. Did you notice what He did to Peter? It seems almost... Out of nowhere. Right? Andrew finds Simon Peter. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And, and there's this sort of John going, you know Simon Peter. Okay. And then he kind of keeps on going. Uh, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And then as he brings Simon to him, this is Jesus' interaction. He looks at him coming and says, you're Simon, son of John, Simon Barjona. You shall be called Cephas. I'm just going to change your name from the, the Hebrew Aramaic Simon to the Aramaic Cephas, which even Cephas is a Greekified version of 
the Aramaic version. And then he has to translate that into Greek, Peter, Petros. It seems like a, a random um, name change. Uh, I have, I've told you the story probably before. It's been a while. Um, I haven't done it in a while. It's been a while. I, I, I've, I, have, I have a history of changing people's names. Um, we had a girl, Nicole, I was coaching JV soccer when we were first married back in the mid, late mid-90s, whatever it was, uh, at a Christian school. Her name's Nicole. Her friends called her Nickel. I didn't think she was worth a nickel. We called her Penny. That became her, like literally her family started calling her. Like it just, it just lost. But that was really just a jokey, right? I mean, I'll make a joke about, okay, your friends are calling you nickel. I don't think you're worth that much. We're going to call you, you call you Penny. And just, you know, it took off. And, and to the point that the next year I had an assistant coach who didn't know her actual name. Like he learned it somewhere during the season. But that's, a, that's just a funny, pointless, meaningless name change. This actually is different. Because in this moment, Peter, uh, Jesus is calling what will be as though it already is. Peter is going to be the rock. Peter is going to be a solid foundation of the church. Jesus calls him that from the beginning. As though, well, I, I know what you're going to be. I find it fascinating that he didn't use the Aramaic word for denier. Or liar. Or talks without thinking. Right? That's what we sort of, when we think of Peter, that's kind of, we start there. We start with denying Jesus three times. We start with finding comfort in the fact that he speaks before he really takes a second to sort of evaluate. Should I say this? Is this something worth actually coming out of my mouth, even though it's been in my brain? And we go, okay, we'll go. At least Peter does that too. But that's not the name he uses. From the outset of Peter's arrival, from the outset of Simon's interaction with Jesus, Jesus begins to call him the rock. He does that with us. I mean, he calls you saints. Are we? Well, okay, technically, yes, because we're set apart. And that is really the aim of saint. But you look in your mirror. You watch yourself day in and day out. You see the thoughts in your head. You see the longing of your hearts that have nothing to do with Jesus. And you think, that ain't a saint. That doesn't seem very saintly to me. He's calling what will be as though it already is. This is the work of Christ in our lives. And, and we just sang, by the way, a setting of Psalm 1. Right? That was why we sang that. Because, because what does the, the tree, the, the, the yielding its fruit in season, it flourishes, it's planted by streams of water. Who is that guy? It's the guy who's rooted in the Word of God. 
Come and see is the call of ordinary evangelism. It's the call of ordinary discipleship. It's also finally, fairly briefly, the call of ordinary worship. If worship is discipleship, then whom do we worship? Look at the end of the passage, verses 49 to 51. Nathaniel calls Jesus, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Now, you do realize... Part of the reason Nathaniel's doing that is because he walked up to Jesus who said, hey, by the way, I saw you under that fig tree, right? And that fig tree isn't in the neighbor's backyard, right? It's not like he looked out his back window and saw him right back there kind of by the back wall. Nathaniel's recognizing people don't see that. You know things Mere mortals, mere men, mere humans, people like, you know, me and my brother Philip and, and these guys, Andrew and Peter, I've, Simon, I've, I've known for a long time. But we don't know stuff like that. How did you do that? Nathaniel recognizes that God has come in the flesh, that Jesus is, as the first 18 verses introduced him, right? He is the son of God. But Jesus' favorite term for himself is not son of God. It's son of man. Taken from the book of Daniel. And, and part of the picture, notice the end of verse 51. He calls himself, you'll see, you'll see these angels uh, ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus says, I'm fully God, but I'm fully man. I am in the flesh to, to bear your sin, to bear your burden, to, to be a, a, an adequate and acceptable substitute for you. Then he makes this connection. That ladder that Jacob saw, that's me. You see... Why does that matter here? Here's, here's a thread I think is, is being connected here. Notice he describes Nathaniel as an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Who was the first Israelite? It was Jacob. Whose name was changed to Israel. You know Jacob. The cheater. The deceiver. The swindler. Um, the one who had this dream at a place called, well, it, the name became Bethel, the house of God. Now, you, you caught that at the end of our Old Testament reading. Um, and so in that place, Jacob, a, a deceitful, a deceiver Israelite, sees this ladder with the angel's Riding, climbing up and back, up and down, ascending and descending. Jesus says, "Look, just as Jacob, the first Israelite, in whom there was deceit, saw this ladder, you too will see this ladder. But here's the catch: I'm the ladder. I'm the place where heaven and earth meet. I'm the one who grants access to the Father. It is only through me." So we aren't climbing Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder climbed down to us. That's part of 
Jesus's point here. In other words, it's in Christ that heaven and earth meet. It's through the Son that we have access to the Father. And that's exactly how worship works. We worship the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And so this passage says to us, come and see. Come and see is the the call of ordinary evangelism, ordinary discipleship, and ordinary worship. Let me make just a couple of applications from uh, this passage. First, if you're here this morning... Uh, and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior and your Master, you still haven't found what you're looking for, then let me invite you. Come and see. Make it a habit of being where Jesus is. See for yourself. Just come. See. Be a part of the, the life of the church. See if Jesus is all he claims to be all we claim him to me to be. And even if you don't believe immediately, keep coming, keep seeing. Second, if you're a uh, if you're a Christian, you've professed your faith and trust in Christ. You have found what you're looking for, even if from time to time you think. It just seems so. Ordinary. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you kind of wonder from time to time. Maybe sometimes you think there there should be something else. There should be something more. Well, this passage, Jesus says to you, come and see. Come sit at my feet. Come learn about me. Learn my word. Come see me in my word. Get to know me. And grow. A third application Uh, We would do, I've already kind of alluded to this, we would do well to listen to people around us. We would do well to listen to the things when they say, they may not use these words, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. They will express the sentiment, even if they don't use that language. Our response, we should learn to start with, come and see. Come and see if Jesus doesn't satisfy your soul. Satisfy your every longing. See if he isn't the answer to your questions. I might add, those times when we think to ourselves, I I can't evangelize well because I'm scared I'm going to get questions I don't know the answer to. Well, then maybe we need to rethink our discipleship, right? Maybe if we aren't availing ourselves of the opportunity to know his word, then we won't have questions. So there's that sort of self-defeating cycle. And then the last application is this. This table is set for us to come and see and touch and taste and smell that Christ is for us all sufficient. Our Messiah, our King, our Savior, our Lord. This is a table designed And it's rather ordinary, isn't it? We talk about the ordinary means of grace, word, sacraments, prayer. And if you stay for prayer and praise, you get all of them in a really concentrated and fairly thorough way just in these two hours this morning. But the point is, Jesus uses this table to reshape our hearts and minds just as he uses his word. To confirm for us 
for the rest of our senses what our ears have already heard. And so as we uh, prepare to come to this table, uh, come and feast together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to uh, suffer and bleed and die in our place, to satisfy the demands of the law, to atone for our guilt, for our shame, for our sin, to be the lamb and the priest that offered the lamb, for being the message of hope in the gospel, to being the proclaimer of and being the proclaimer of the gospel. Would you be our king? Would you rule and reign in us by your word? And would you remind us all over again that the ordinary Christian life isn't ordinary at all? And would you use this, your word, and this table to remind us just how sweet the name of Jesus is to us? We ask this all in your name and for your honor and glory. Amen.